This is part one of a new teaching series that I'm doing in the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. And we will be trying to get out one episode every week. And with that, uh, each episode hopefully will be right around 30 minutes or so. Uh, this one here will be a bit longer, about 45 minutes to 50 minutes to get some background information and context in so we can understand the letter that Paul writes. Now, Ephesians is, is uh, one of uh, my favorite uh, letters or epistles that uh, in the New Testament it really gives us a, a deeper, clearer understanding of God's sovereignty, the church's identity, um, and God's purpose. So we will be able, in turn, understand who we are, our, our own personal identity and our connection to the, to the church, uh, understand our calling and our purpose, both as individuals in our individual life and as being a part of a, a larger community of believers. And uh, so it's, it's like, see it as, as, the, as uh, the blueprint for what the church should look like and function like within our world, and uh, and it, I mean, it's it, there's it, there's going to be relevance for for us. What Paul writes for them, as we see and understand why he's writing certain things to those in Ephesus at this time, and what it means for them to respond to that. And there's going to be some relevance for us in our, in our day, in our time. And so, and as I, I expect that, as as we look through and go through this teaching in Ephesians that we're going to be confronted by God uh, in some ways of what the church is not supposed to be like. And we will be challenged to let go of some some false ideas, some false views, some inadequate views and practices we may hold dear. And the question is, is that we're going to have to be, we're going to continually be confronted with as we read the scriptures here, as we look at God's blueprint for what the church should be like, is going to be confronted as what are we going to do about what we read and learn and understand God, uh, God's desire to see uh, the church function like. And so that, that's going to be a continual question we'll have to respond to in our own personal life or in, as a part of our church community, whether you're part of the one I'm a, I'm a part of or whether you're listening to me somewhere in uh, uh, another city, another state, another country, and, and how you respond to God and, and be a part of the, the church community where you're at. Now, just to, uh, to understand, it's, it's at the time of this writing of this letter, Paul is in prison. And from a place of in prison, he's not given up. He's not thinking like he can't have an impact. But he understands where he's at, and he knows what God's given him as a responsibility and a, and a, a stewardship. And he is, in these moments, going to write letters. And he's writing a few letters while he's in prison. And one of those letters is to, to the Ephesians. And this is the letter, the epistle we're going to look at. And most commentators see uh, f- f- the, uh, the epistle, the letter to the Ephesians, as, as more of a, a circular letter that was intended to circulate uh, uh, among the house churches that were in Ephesus and perhaps even the churches in Asia and, uh, and along or near the road uh, uh, Tychicus would would have taken as he traveled from Ephesus to Colossae, because he was there, he was given the responsibility to deliver to deliver Paul's letters to the church at Colossae, and so on, on the way Ephesus is on the way, so he's uh, giving these letters out to the, those, and it was meant to be circulated, and not uh, and not just for one specific church. So there's really something uh, not just for one specific church, but for all people, all all believers of, of all ages. And when I say the church, uh, it's important to understand that, that when they when they were hearing it, when Paul was writing to these believers in his day, and the word church 
uh, his gathered people, uh, his gathering of people, his his, his followers, uh, not Paul's, but Jesus. Um, the, the church is, is not what we think of like church today. It's not this o- overly structured institutional church that we we go to on Sundays and there's a structure and institution that, that's all part of that. But this is really about, there's these many organic house churches um, that that are throughout Ephesus and throughout this whole area of Asia, and they're just all relationally connected, interconnected in Christ. They're one in Christ, and they have relationship with each other. And really, each one is is um, they're living out uh, this dynamic, organic life in relationship with God and with each other in a little local group, but also in relationship to the other other churches that are there. And they see themselves as all part of the body of Christ. And Paul's trying to actually strengthen that view as they're all part of Christ's body. And so this is that letter. Here he's he's writing it. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at, um, start with actually chapter 1, just verse 1 and 2, and we're going to look at those, and from that, I'm going to look, let's look at some some uh, context and some background information about Paul, the church, and we're going to look at actually, uh, Ephesus is not just mentioned here, this one letter, Ephesus, or the Ephesians, or the book, the people of Ephesus, are mentioned a variety of times in Acts, and, we, and I, we, I look, I want to tie some of those things in to see uh, it fits in with some of the, Paul's topic of the sovereignty of God and God's working his will and purposes at a certain time. And it's really interesting to see how that all fits together with some of the focus of Paul's letter and writing. So let's start with verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Uh, it reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and, and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's this man, Paul. Maybe you may know who he is, may not, but just to give you some background and thoughts about, about Paul himself, um, Paul was previously known as Saul. He was a, a real proud, he was real proud of his Jewish heritage, his descent. And I want to read from Philippians uh, 3, uh, uh, it's actually another letter that Paul writes to the uh, to Philippi, the, the believers there, uh, and he uh, writes it. It's just his, his personal um, take on himself in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 4 through 7, where he's, he's talking about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's Paul, who was known as Saul at that time when he first comes to Christ and encounters Jesus. And he later changes his name to Paul, as we, he's well known as. He was proud of his Jewish heritage, his descent. He was one of those Pharisees who strictly adhered to the law and tradition, self-righteous in his zeal for God and the law. He hated the early church, and he brought really harsh persecution on the church during that time and um, before he becomes a believer. And, and in Acts chapter 7, you see there's a story of, uh, of Saul over, uh, overseeing the stoning of the first martyr of the church, who was Stephen, and he's being persecuted, and Paul oversees that in, his, in that book of Acts, 
makes note of that. And then in chapter 8 of Acts, it shows Paul or Saul at that time. We see him, it records him going out and he's going around persecuting the church all over. And he gets these letters. He's going around and he's uh, uh, arresting or dragging and throwing these prisoners, these believers into prison and making them prisoners. Um, And he's persecuting them. And then in Acts uh, 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 chapter 9, he's uh, received some letters from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they're sending him, he's going on his way to Damascus, and he's uh, going to find believers there and get, have them bound up and bring them to Jerusalem. And on his way to Damascus, he is, uh, encounters Jesus. I'm going to read from chapter 9 of Acts and, and, and a couple of spots from verse 3 of that chapter. Now as he went on his way, talking about Saul, uh, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So he, they led him into, by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he, without, he was up without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And, and now, at this point, while Paul is there for those three days, not eating or drinking, there waiting, uh, God goes and uh, he calls a man named Ananias. And he tells him to go to Paul, or to Saul at the time, and to heal him, and to tell Paul God's purpose for his life. And let's look at Acts chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. Now is when uh, God calls Ananias, who's in Damascus. But the Lord said to him, uh, this is Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul was healed and was filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and if you continue to read on in chapter 9, he began to preach the Jesus he had persecuted. So here's the once, the once the, he's uh, the persecutor of the church who was searching out and arresting and binding uh, believers of the church was now the one who was sought out and arrested by Jesus himself and bound by Jesus. And Jesus' new purpose for his life is given to Paul. And so um, what we see here is, is, is God's sovereignty choosing Paul. And Paul says uh, in, in Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now the word apostle, just it means sent one. Now there were, there were apostles during that day. You, you see the, the 12 original, <clears throat> and then the one that was assigned after Judas uh, killed, uh, hangs himself. And then there's others like Paul that were spiritual fathers of the church and had authority to establish doctrine uh, and they were they were sent out to start and expand and expand and advance the kingdom of God and plant new churches. 
And so they, they had the, they, they had the authority to establish the doctrines and the teachings of Christ. But uh, there's still apostles today. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, Paul's going to write about them to the church then. Um, but the thing is, there's no new doctrine now. That was established by those early apostles. And what you see here is, is something that, uh, this is a ministry Paul receives. It's not something he achieves. And I just want to make a point about this is for us, our own self. It, it, there's a, a huge difference between achieved ministry and received ministry. So here, achieved ministry is something we accomplish, something we maintain by our own will and our own power and is done really for our sake. And received ministry is a calling and a gifting that one is given by God, by the by by God's grace to receive that ministry, that calling. Uh, and and see, so you, you end up joining Jesus in his ministry and what he is doing. And it's done by grace and by his power and for his glory, not our own. See, Paul knew he had, had God's anointing. We'll see that he really understands this and that God's authority was behind him, which gave him such confidence to boldly and humbly stand and speak <clears throat> to represent Jesus. See, he really get the point. We get that point. He's he's received. He knows this is this is from God. This is a gift God given. He recognizes. He understands that, and it starts to shape his life. So he has nothing to lose and nothing to gain. And see, he just walks confidently with God. And it's important that we walk in what God has given us, not what we desire, not what we try to achieve, not we come think up in our own mind. But we need to walk in what God has given us, and we receive that. And when we're faithful and little. He gives us more, but really it's about what God wants. It's about his ministry. It's about his glory and about his good. And so uh, goodwill. And and it's important that we receive that ministry and walk in what God has called us, just as Paul's talking about himself. And just as he says, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And uh, this thing about the will of God, we're going to see it a couple of times as we uh, talk about here today. Um, the here it's about the sovereignty of God. Paul understands, I'm an apostle, but it's by God's will. The sovereignty of God is one of the major themes that Paul brings out in the Ephesians, in this letter. And here at the very beginning, Paul starts to plant the seeds of this theme that he will further explore through the letter. The will of God, just as he talks about, uh, not he talks about, but to, about the Lord Jesus talks about in his, in his prayer the, that uh, he gives the disciples, uh, where he says, that he, he says that, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul understands this here, and we need to understand that as we're responding to what God is doing. See, Paul is fully aware and is pointing out who he is. I'm, I'm, I belong to Jesus now. And that's his call and his mission. And then and his, he understands that it did not come from any qualification he himself possessed, nor has it come from his own efforts or his achievements, but that God in his sovereign choice called, prepared, and set him apart and sent him for God's purpose. That's received ministry. And we're all in God's plan. God's got a purpose and design for all of us. So if you take something away from today, just start to take that away. Um, as we start to go, just in the very beginnings here, of the, the, the letter of Ephesians, the first couple words. And then uh, from there, it says, he says, uh, uh, second part of chapter 1, verse, verse 1, he says, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, who are the Ephesians? Well, the Ephesians, or those here in Asia, 
um, in the province of Asia here, is um, there were a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers uh, living in Ephesus. And, um, and we're going to look actually at the background, how the, how, you know, the message of Christ comes, how it expands and grows within there. But right now, just so you know, that it's, it's, Ephesus is the capital <clears throat> of the province of Asia. During this time, this Roman occupation, it was one of the largest cities, uh, and it was really important to the Roman Empire because it was its, its location. It was a major commercial center of uh, of the, of that time, uh, and so the, here is that like the center of people coming and going through the city, and here the gospel becomes uh, Ephesus becomes a megaphone for the gospel, as we'll, we'll see as we, we share some things with you. Because this is not the only time that the, the church in Ephesus is mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, we're going to look at some references and, and learn more about them. And let's look at, uh, start with Acts 18, 18 through 21, where Ephesus the church is, for, is first uh, uh, mentioned. Just, just prior to this, Paul is in Corinth where he's been there a while preaching the gospel and he had met Aquila and Priscilla there in, in verse 18 of chapter 18, 18 says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Notice there's a phrase here he uses in the end of verse 21 that's similar to Ephesians 1, 1, where he talks about he's an apostle by the will of God. Here he says, I will return to you if God wills. You see, Paul's first visit in Ephesus was only brief, and he was on his way to Jerusalem from, from Corinth. And his preaching was well received by the Jews in the synagogue, and they wanted Paul to stay. But Paul declines, and as he's leaving, he says, if it be God's will, he would return. And what does this tell us about Paul and his, his decision-making? God's will was no minor thing with him. He was willing to pass up what, on all appearances, naturally just seemed to be an open door to preach the gospel there. But it appears that Paul believes it must not have been the right timing to stay there in Ephesus at that, that, that moment. See, God has strategic timing for, for strategic places. And Paul, at this moment, doesn't feel it's God's will for him to stay. He's already sensing God is moving him to go to Jerusalem. So he's, he's, his response, like, I don't know if you ever heard someone say, well, if it's God's will, I'll be there. If it's God's will, I'll be there. And lots of times that's used as an excuse to just, like, if I, basically some people say, well, they're really saying, if I end up having something what I feel is more important or more enjoyable to do, I'm going to do. But, but if not, if God's will, then I'll be there. But Paul, this is serious for him, and it should be for us. It's really just as he starts the letter here in Luke, as uh, Luke uh, in, in Luke in, in Acts, where Luke records Paul's comments. If God's will, it, he he will be back. He wasn't flippantly saying, "Ah, if it's God's will, I'll be back." Like no big deal. No, he understood something. He was. God's. He understood whose rule he was under, and he was submitting to God's will and responding to God at that moment to go to Jerusalem. Now let's go to Acts 16, 6 through 10. 
And uh, reading another part here, it helps us tie in the, um, some aspects of, uh, of the Church at Ephesus. And where we're going to read here in chapter, uh, chapter 16 of Acts is where Paul has taken Silas to go on a mission trip with him. And they're looking to, to go to certain places to, to share the gospel, preach the gospel. And it says here in verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, including concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here um, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is trying to preach the gospel in different areas. And, uh, and prior to what we read in 18, we read in 18 just a, little, a few minutes ago, where he shows up for the first time there, it's, here, it's where we read here in 16 that he had previously attempted to go and preach in Asia, where it says he, they went from there having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to, to speak the word in Asia. So they were trying to go into Asia, and they sensed that the Lord was telling them not to, which would in Asia, Ephesus would have been included in Asia. See, but the Holy Spirit was forbidding them at that time and directing him elsewhere. And this is important to understand is, is following God's, God's direction. Even as Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, that I can only do what my Father is doing so I have to watch him, follow him, and participate in the work that he is doing, and 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 Paul is doing the same thing here. And so in this 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 little part of scripture from Acts eighteen, I just read in Acts sixteen, the beginnings of trying to reach into Ephesus, where God is is uh, keeping Paul at this moment from going into that area of uh, Asia where Ephesus would have been, um, and and even when Paul does make the Ephesus the first time. He feels it's not God's will at that time he, to stay there. He needs to go, even though it seems like there's an open door at that moment. And this is a small form, like a, like a picture of, of one of the themes, one of the focuses that Paul emphasizes in, in, in uh, the letter to the, to, to the Ephesians, which is God's sovereignty. See, in Acts 18, we read Paul leaves Ephesus for Jerusalem. He doesn't stay. And, and then uh, then here in, in 16, when he first he's trying to get into Asia, God, the Holy Spirit is forbidding him from going into that area instead to go to Macedonia. Now we're going to go to verse chapter 19, where he finally does make his way back to Ephesus. It's, it's God's timing uh, for him to, to come to Ephesus. And let's read. We're going to read actually uh, Acts 19, 1 through uh, 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into, the, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for, th- for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. So the, per- so the first time that Paul tries to go in, into Asia, where Ephesus was in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit forbids him. And then in Acts 18, he stops at Ephesus for the first time. There seems to be an open door, but he, it feels as God's will not to stay, so he moves on. And now this time, Paul arrives in Ephesus here, and we read he encounters these 12 disciples who had not heard of nor received the Holy Spirit. They only knew of the teaching of John the Baptist and had received John's baptism. So Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus, and he lays hands on them, and they, are, they, they received the Holy Spirit, and they prophesied and spoke in tongues. And then Paul goes right into the synagogue, and he, and he starts to teach there and, and, uh, about the kingdom of God. That's a, a focus here. Uh, and he taught for three months, and he was there was a warm reception. But that turned hostile at some point. He was forced to leave the synagogue. Now, by this time, a few of the Jews and in, uh, in the Gentiles who were God-fearers, they had received Christ. And Paul took these new believers with him. And he spoke daily in the lecture hall in the city called the School of Tyrannius. That's from Acts 19.9. And he was there for two years. And many, many of the people in Ephesus in the surrounding area now had the opportunity to hear the gospel. In fact, uh, Luke says, uh, all the inhabitants of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. See, if Ephesus became this spiritual megaphone for Jesus. It is thought that the, you know, the Ephesus could have been like uh, the epicenter for Christian missionary activity in Asia that led to the founding of churches like Laodicea, the Colossi, Hierapolis, and elsewhere. Um, and, and perhaps also at like Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Philadelphia or Sardis, like the churches we read in, in, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So here you see the sovereignty of God. And then Paul, knowing that he writes about God's will as he, in the first chapter of uh, Ephesus, chapter 1, the apostle by, uh, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And we read in Acts where he says, I'll be back if it's God's will. He's looking for God's direction. He's trying to follow God's uh, uh, leading at all times. I mean, just as you know, the Spirit goes wherever it wants, and he's trying to catch the Spirit and follow what the Spirit's doing and, and, and watch what the Father's doing, just like Jesus did. It's a picture for us to follow, too. and It's a picture of God's sovereignty. He knows the time of maximum impact, of the intersecting of people's lives and moments in time, and he has Paul here at this point, and it says, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, Tyrannius, this uh, hall of Tyrannius, it's interesting that that word means uh, sovereign, uh, also translated sometimes as God or Lord or Master. So Paul goes from the synagogue to the school of Tyrannius, to the school of the sovereign, to the school of the Lord Master Jesus. And that's what it becomes. And then the word of the Lord goes out from there. Now, now, years later, here we are, and we can look back in hindsight, and we can see you know, by looking, not just reading the book, uh, the letter to Ephesians, but we'll see in Acts as Luke records the account of Paul coming and going and, and, and God bringing him to Ephesus. We can see 
this is God's sovereign strategic timing for this strategic place in history. So this significant church, though, they, they, that has this impact. It's not just Paul. There's people. And they're, they're, it's it, the gospel is spreading. The kingdom is advancing, and has this this significant kingdom influence that started with with what seems uh, these insignificant beginnings. These twelve uh, disciples that uh, the, that uh, Paul connects to in their very beginning. So let's read Ephesians chapter one, verse one and two again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's the what appears to be these insignificant beginnings of these twelve disciples that are that have the basic beginnings of the message from the message of John, and um, and, and uh, here he calls them saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's focus uh, first of all on the word faithful. What does being faithful mean? It means trustworthy. It means being loyal. It can be counted on, diligent, and consistent to hold to something or someone. Now, here's these 12 disciples that Paul met when he first came back to Ephesus. And they, were they faithful? They were there holding on to the basic beginnings of the gospel. They had not heard about the Holy Spirit nor being filled with the Holy Spirit. All they knew was John's baptism uh, and his teachings and looking for the one that would come after John. And these guys had remained faithful in what God had given them for a long time, waiting for the promise, waiting for the one John said would come after him. And we see God connected them to Paul. And it's God's timing, God's sovereign hand to fulfill, uh, to, to, to hear, for, the, for Paul to share with them the, familiar, for the fulfillment of John's ministry and teaching that they had been prepared to hear about Jesus. And they became part of what God was going to build here in Ephesus that would last well beyond them. Remember I mentioned at the very beginning that we'll be confronted with the, the, the question, what are you going to do about what we read and learn here? And here we weren't learn about being faithful. When, when I read this, I think of the question, will, will I, will we, will you be faithful with what God has given us or me? You know, however insignificant it may appear at the time, what has God given you? What has God given me? What has God given us, the, the community we're a part of, to be faithful with? If we're faithful to what he gives us, we can, we can count on him to be faithful to us, not to make us famous or to make us significant, but that his purposes will be worked in us and through us. So, so Jesus becomes significant. So Jesus becomes faithful. So my, the call to us here in this message, even as in the very first verse here, Paul talks about to the saints and if who are faithful. We're called to be faithful to Jesus and what he has given us or you and us the church and to find our joy in him. Another word Paul uses here is he describes them as writing as saints. You know, this word saints sometimes uh, you know, some know this meaning, but some don't. So I'm going to share it as you know, as some that don't know it, so they get, they understand. Saints, it, the word implies holy ones, set apart, someone that is separated, that's set apart from common things to be used by God for God's holy purposes. 
And so here, sometimes we think of saints, we think those are super special people. There's only a few of them. No, he's talking about those that are believers. Any believer, someone who's who's received Christ, who's believed in him as, as the son of the living God, who's died on the cross, and they believe and trust him as their Lord and Savior. Not just Savior, but Lord. They're saints. And, and, and Paul's writing to the church, all the believers there, letting them know, yes, you're faithful, but you're also set apart. You're holy ones. You've been you've been chosen by God in this time, in this place, in time, in history, to be set apart from common things, to be used uh, by God for for God's holy purposes. Uh, purposes. Here, this is another theme of, of that we're going to see uh, Paul um, uh, kind of brings out in a fee, in, uh, in the, this letter to the Ephesians, not just God's sovereignty, but God's purposes that it, we're called to be a part of it. It's not. Uh, merely a religious title. Uh, it's a de- it's a, de- a declaration. It's your identity. It's your state of being. You are a saint. You are been set apart by God. I know it may be hard for some of you to claim that and think that, but you have to understand. Paul is recognizing them for who they are because God has chosen them, just like God chose him. He's applying it here to those who, by virtue of their salvation in Christ, are now part of the church, part of God's household. They're God's people. And Paul Paul uses the word are in describing saints and faithful, right? He says to the to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful. This word is in the present tense. Right now, you are a saint. This should really strike us and make bring to us this an awareness of who's Whose we really are, and that God's, that God's call, our, our salvation, the purpose He's called us to live out, did not arise from any qualification on our part, any effort, any accomplishment, any thing, uh, any gifts we have, uh, but something we receive by God's sovereign grace through faith. Remember, it's about it's not something we achieve; it's something we've received. God's given us that identity. His children were his saints, were his set-apart ones. And then he also, Paul uses the word, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ. This is another major theme in Ephesians that Paul is going to bring out, that we look at. And, um, and what does it mean or imply? What's it really, what's it mean? Well, believers have this, like, geographical location, right? They're physically in Ephesus, right? And right now I'm physically in Granby. You may be in Belchertown or Hardwick or South Hadley or in China or in Iraq. It doesn't matter physically where you're at. We have this geographical location. But spiritually, if we're in Christ, if we're believers in Christ, we are positioned in Christ we are what we are by virtue of our union with Christ. They and, 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 and we are saints in Christ Jesus. We're not in Adam anymore, nor are they in the goddess of Artemis. Like that was one of the goddesses with, or the pagan gods in Ephesus. And there's, there was tons of pagan gods. And he's, he's, he's getting to understand, you're not in them anymore. You're not in Adam. You're not in pagan gods. You are in Christ Jesus, the righteous one. And being in him, you have been made righteous in Christ. Now let's look, look at uh, Acts 19, 17 through 19 um, and, and read that as and as. These became known, excuse me, as this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Gentiles, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Not only did Ephesus have a reputation as being this commercial epicenter, they also had a reputation of being a center for magical practices. And the believers brought their magical books together and they burned them. And Luke was clearly, I mean, he's, he's impressed with the amount of uh, money or the value of these books. And it's estimated the value is equivalent of 50,000 50, pieces of silver. They think, well, what would that be? Of, what, what kind of value would that be today? Well, one piece of silver in that day was equivalent of a, of a day's wage for somebody. Now, if you think of, of a day's wage now, if it was just, just if you say like $100, $100, it, it, so 50,000 pieces of silver in that time would be, if it was $100 a, a, a day's wage right now, if we count just that amount, that would be five, $5 million worth of books and magical arts. Now, when I'm saying the word magic, you're probably wondering, what is, he, what is what are you talking about? Um, it, it was believed back in that time that there was occult formulas and rites and spells and things they would they would um, try to use to compel uh, spiritual forces to act on their behalf. They believed they could manipulate and, and influence the course of nature by these supernatural or occultic means. Um, and this is what it distinguished it from um, of this from from any religion. This was this was for the occult stuff, and the, the people at that time were also given to uh, superstition uh, and uh, these irrational, excessive fears of divine things and, and demons and kinds of stuff. And and this reflects the the, the notion that, that demons were present throughout the world, causing all kinds of. Uh, different things like diseases or, or uh, ailments uh, like epilepsy or, or it, those kind of things were attributed to the work of demons and the superstitious believed that the effects of the demons had to be countered by some means using like a verbal uh, formulas or, or, or amulets or, or different things they would use to conjure up uh, trying to manipulate the spiritual forces but here comes Paul he shows up and how does he take care of demons? It says, in Jesus' name, come out. And they were out. They were done. And so this is the kind of culture they were living in. And, and I'm sort of giving you a little bit of the background of the pagan culture. That it, This magic was superstitious stuff. There's occult stuff, formulas and rites that would they use and, and casting spells. Um, and then there was also, they were given over to astrology. You know, astrology is not something new for us. It was back then. And a common form of that was they would use astrology to predict events of a person's life based on, like, the position of the stars and planets at the time of their birth. And it really was it was a form of determinism. It was a, the course of human affairs had been fixed by the movement of the heavenly bodies. And it really mixed with fate. Fate and determinism were very similar and they see it as this impersonal force or power that ruled the world and in, uh, in its fatalistic or deterministic fashion and predetermining and ordering the course of events. See, fate defines events as it was meant to be. You heard that phrase. 
uh, like this untimely death or the reversal of one's uh, reversal of one's circumstances. It, it, it meant there, it was chance or luck, and the outcome usually was unrelated to any human efforts or decision. Those th- that didn't matter what we did or our decisions uh, didn't matter. And fate is usually described as it's the finality of events as as they have worked out themselves out, and this has finally happened. This is fate. This is what we couldn't be stopped. This is this is uh, those uh, expected circumstances because of the uh, these impersonal forces and powers that rule the world and determine the fate of that person, predetermining the order of events. And bringing those things about, and and it was it was it was that person's fate. And there's a finality to it is, that is about that event that's happened already. But as a finality, also is projected out into the future, thinking that there's the inevitable events of the future you can't change. They'll they'll work themselves out, and implies there's no choice one has in in uh, affecting the final fate one has. So many, especially the, of, of Gentile or, or pagan background, they, they, during this time, they, they thought human events were pretty much predetermined for them. And this, this, this type of uh, fatalism for us may think like it's like there's no meaning, there's no motivation about anything. But it may be that some of them during the age found it comforting and reassuring thought. We, we don't understand, but that that's how they saw things, how they saw life. And the, the, the word uh, uh, fate is, you also hear fatality, another fatalism. And fate just implies there's no choice and ends with death. So fate is seen as this outcome that's been determined by an outside agency that acts upon a person without any of their, it doesn't matter their choices. But see, when we think of the, the, the opposite, not the opposite, but the, the distinction between that is we're going to see Paul focus on God's got a purpose and, and a design for us and a call for us to walk in that. There's a destiny that's different than fate. Destiny is this participating in achieving an outcome that is directly related to to itself, to ourself, and participation in that event and in that destiny it happens willfully on our part. And see, Paul's uh, speaking to these people that see that their choices and those things don't matter. Uh, and, but here he's, he's going to call them, and, and this is their background. And, and, and sometimes we think that way too. We are, we're, we live in a culture that sometimes is prone to that and just give up. But we are called to participate in the purposes of God willfully on our part, choosing to respond to God, just as Paul did. If He says, I am apostle by the will of God. I can't stay here right now. If God wills, I'll come back. And you see, he's participating in God's activity as he moves and lives his life in a part of the activity. It comes to Ephesus where here the gospel goes out and all in Asia hear it. You see that it's not fatalism. It's, it's Paul's choices to respond to what God is doing and leading and being a participant in God who was sovereign over all things. There's not, it's not this impersonable force that's around the globe or around the earth that God is sovereign over all things. And he invites Paul and invites us to be participants in this destiny of what God's bringing about his redemptive plan. And within the pagan cultures, they saw these, uh, what they saw within these pagan gods, the many gods that they they had, they, the people saw them as controlling, but had really no connection to them. And they, they sought relief or deliverance from their fate that they had if it was going bad in hopes that these spiritual powers would would um, show them some benevolence. 
and gain some sympathy from them that they could escape the, the power of fate that was now upon their life so they could get a better fate. And in this pagan culture, there was, there was, there was uh, also this, um, uh, this belief uh, that they didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. Other than Judaism and Christianity, these pagans saw death as a separation, the soul from the body, and the soul lived on in a variety of different kinds of settings. And as we go through Ephesians, we're going to see uh, where Paul is writing to them and, and is, is correcting some of this incorrect thinking and belief, which would in turn uh, affect their priorities and their practice. And he starts to shape them around God's uh, way of seeing things and God's perspective. And we need to change the way we think, too. This is one of the things that's going to What are we going to, going to do about what we read and we learn here? And do we start to see things differently as, as uh, regards to how God sees them? And so we're going to talk about these things will come back up as we, that I mentioned these things here, uh, as we go through F, uh, Ephesians. I just wanted to, at the beginning, give us, see the sovereign act of God who, who brought this church about, this community of believers, and Paul being brought there and bringing a new perspective and life to them. And now let's go to actually Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. We'll close with this here, where Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we think, well, it's just a, he's just saying, Hello, what's up? How you doing? No, these are, you know, Paul words carry weight. This is, he says that he calls, uh, uses the, the word, you know, it says by, uh, by God's will, or he calls him faithfully, calls him saint. These words were specific. And even in his greeting, grace and peace. They're not a shallow greeting. Paul's just not saying hello. Because you see, if you read further in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, which I'm going to read right now, it says, Let no corrupt talk uh, come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul has personally come to know the true source of grace and peace. That's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to bless and impact and impart to God's people the same kind of kingdom grace and peace that he has come to know. So what is he implying in this greeting of grace and peace? Grace, what it means, it's God's steadfast love. It's his unmerited favor. favor. That's what we hear that all the time. But it's also seen as God's divine influence upon the heart of man, changing us, changing and moving us in the direction God desires. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying grace, God's unmerited favor, but also God's divine influence upon your life. Let it influence you in the ways of the kingdom. See, grace is kind of the fountain, right? And peace is a part of the stream that comes forth from that fountain of grace. Peace is the shalom. It does not mean that there's that the, that the turmoil and hardship will be all gone, but that there will be a deep spiritual confidence and this contentment, this peace in Christ that we can have in spite of the circumstances. See, grace comes to influence us. It's God's grace. It's God's kindness towards us. It's His it's, uh, it's, uh, benevolence towards us. And it's, it's it's an influence upon us that becomes His fountain. It comes, bursts forth with peace, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of hardship, because they're dealing with it there. And it brings this confidence. And He's wanting that to be a part of their life, grace and peace. So my question to you in that is, what are you going to do? Are our our greetings just generalities? And on the surface, are we wanting to really impart blessings by our words and that they impact the heart of people? We're called to be different. We're people of the kingdom. We're, We're, as he writes to them, saints in Ephesus, you have been set apart 
not for common use now, for something that's supernatural and destiny that brings about God's kingdom and blessing for those around us. And that's what Paul's doing here. And he's giving a model for us as we live our life. Look for God's will. Recognize who we are. Be faithful in the little things. Be people that offer grace and peace with words and our works to others. And then Paul says, uses the word, you know, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the very beginnings, he's identifying Jesus uh, is the promised Messiah. He is the, the Son of God who is God. And he connects the two together to saying that they're, they are part of the Trinity. And uh, uh, that's it for this week. And so uh, I know it's a long one, but I want to get in some of this background to help you understand some of it. And we'll touch back on it. And also to talk about some of the sovereignty and some of the very beginning, uh, in the very beginning, here, some of the major, major themes and focuses Paul will keep hitting on. It's something for us to learn. It starts to shape our priorities of our life and our practices for life, how we see who we are, how we see who God is. We see his bigger plan, how we see people, how we see the world, how we see events, world events and circumstances around us. They're happening all the time, but how do we see them? We need to see them within the context that God's sovereign over all things, and we're called to uh, be uh, aware of God working in our life, in our time, in our space, just like he did for the, the church at Ephesus here, when Paul finally shows up there. And it's God's timing and us responding to God's timing in our life in the little things and being faithful in those things that are part of the, the big, bigger picture, the big story of God's plan. And it calls us to try to live our life in alignment, our story in alignment with God's bigger story. Next week, we will pick up in uh, chapter 1 uh, and verse 3. God bless until then.